Hello and welcome back to another episode of Belltel Rugby. My name is Neve Campbell and as always I'm joined by our Belfast Telegraph sports reporter Adam McKendry and rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley. After the weekend, Ulster are back uh, up and running again. Very, very seamless transition from the World Cup as well there. Um, and they returned from Northern Italy with a bonus point win from a game where they both scored and shipped six tries against Zebra. But it was a dodgy enough win, Johnny, to say the least. Yeah, definitely was. Um, I actually thought that they were going to lose at the very, well, I suppose, in the first half or in the start of the second half and they were 10 points down. You're obviously thinking uh, that they might lose, but the reality of the situation is that um, it was a live proposition that they were going to lose until 81, uh, 81 minutes were on the clock because Zebra are five metres from the Ulster line. Having already scored six tries, looking like they're going to score a seventh, that at that stage it would have been game over zebra wins so i don't want to say get out of jail free because obviously we're still analyzing the performance rather than the result as you're always going to do in a game like that against zebra who we know have now lost 26 games in a row so and um, there'll have been plenty of uh analysis done on it this week i think and you can probably already sense i think that uh, the players were well aware that they were relatively lucky to get away with it. Um, yeah, because as Johnny alluded to there, Zebra lost all their league games last year. Um, it's fair to say, it seems they're the worst team in the league, but does that, that doesn't really bode well for Ulster then, I suppose, the fact that they got a got a turnover um, whenever the clock was in the red, they got a 40-36 victory, but are there any positives to take from it, I suppose, or what are your, what are your main negatives that you took? Uh, positives, they're five points ahead of Leinster in the standings already. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, if anybody doesn't detect the sarcasm there, then uh, <laughs> I, I weep for you. Um, there are so few positives to take from that game. I mean, the fact that they won, the fact that they managed to get five points. I mean, look, the attack was good. I mean, you, you, you don't put 40 points on any team without having a good day with ball in hand. So you, you can at least hang your hat on that. But Japers, to be coming away from Parma with a four-point win is a really poor return given the quality of Zebra and the fact that Ulster's team wasn't exactly massively under strength you know it wasn't like Ulster were short and short of 10 to 12 players you know you're well they were not international players but they didn't have 13 players available so well they (laughs) they didn't have or they they didn't have 13 players available but you know, I wouldn't say that Ulster were missing enough players in that team to suggest that this should have been a struggle. Like the team that Ulster put out there were more than good enough to win this game at a canter, and instead you're relying on Zebra taking a very questionable decision to go for a tap and go at the end. Like I, I don't know about anybody else, but you've just had a guy sent to the sin bin uh, for repeatedly collapsing a scrum. All right. Greg McGrath might have uh, might have steadied the scrum a little bit more whenever he came on, but either you're pushing against eight v eight and also a man down the backs, or you're pushing eight v seven and you've got a little bit more ballast to try and continue that scrum dominance. So, personally, I really don't see many positives that you can take from this game. I think Ulster will be coming back in for a very tough review. Uh, this week and rightly so because 
even at this stage of the competition, these are games where you need to be laying down an early marker and Ulster were so close to potentially having an embarrassing defeat on the opening day of the season and goodness knows what that would have done for the confidence. What was the main issue, Johnny? What was the main... Is, there just, is it just totally lacklustre from like throughout the team or what were your... Um... What was your analysis overall of, of their gameplay? Well, they just didn't uh, force enough turnovers. They didn't uh, make enough dominant tackles. They slipped off too many tackles. Like That resulted in them not having enough of the ball. So they only had seven entries to the Zebra 22. They scored six tries. Like There's no issue at all with how clinical they were. There's no issue at all with the way that they attacked. I actually thought some of the attack was interesting what they did. You know, we we heard an awful lot about this double-sided attack that they were going to employ. You know, we've heard that over the last couple of years without really seeing evidence of it. I think if you look at the times and even in some of the tries that they scored where they went left to right and then back against the green, you know, it wasn't a... They didn't consistently just move the ball from one side of the pitch to the other and back again, which is something that we've criticised them for in the past, I thought that everything on that side of the ball was relatively good. But if you only ha- if you lose the possession battle and the territory battle to such a degree as they did against Zebra, then obviously we're going to be talking more about defence. How many times were they able to stop Zebra? They were only credited with two turnovers in the game. One of them was from Callum Reed ripping the ball in the tackle, and the other one was um, the Dave McCann John Andrew effort that essentially seals the game. So really what we're talking about in terms of what the issue was, the issue is defense because or work without the ball. Um, there are efforts to regain the ball, which were not effective enough. You look at talk of more attacking rugby, counter-attacking rugby. Well, it stands to reason that you can only play counter-attacking rugby if you win the ball back and create those transition opportunities, those broken field opportunities. If you don't have a single ruck turnover in the game, then that becomes very difficult. So you're putting so much pressure on your attack. You're actually putting so much pressure on your kicker because let's not forget the try count was even. Nathan Doak went five for six, Ulster won by four. That's the difference in the game. Zebra didn't convert three of their tries and missed a relatively kickable penalty, which all would have made a massive difference to the game. So the conversation that you need to have about this game isn't one about, you know, I suppose what were positives and negatives. It's about how one element of your game, which is what you did without the ball, was such an issue that the other side of your game needed to be very, very effective just to beat, as we say, the worst team in the league from last season. There's technical things that you obviously need to tidy up as well, you know, in terms of you give away 12 penalties, four of them are at the scrum, you have another penalty that doesn't get counted as a penalty because it's penalty advantage, zebra score off that. Um, So that's also from the scrum. So you have five transgressions at the scrum you have four transgressions in the mall you end up with two forwards getting binned because of those that puts everything under intense pressure everything else that you're doing in the game can come back to these moments that you lose and then you can look at more this idea that defense is 
an attitude thing because that's what we're always told. You know, we're told it during the week before this game that, you know, defense isn't quote unquote that complicated. So then it becomes a discussion of is this an early season thing, bearing in mind that they only conceded or sorry, only Leinster and Munster conceded less points and less tries in the ERC last season, despite the fact that Ulster had a very similar game to this in their first away game last year against Scarlets and were shipping three tries a game in the early part of the season, but then really tightened up thereafter, really from mid-January onwards, they really tightened up in terms of points per game that they conceded. So we're dealing with a small sample size here, naturally. We've only only had one game played. So everything that we're looking at through this very Ulster prism is based on these 80 minutes. But the things that we're now going to be watching for moving forward through the early weeks of this season, for me, isn't so much the attack. It's not so much that we have to be concerned about um, how they're going to score their tries, which was, I suppose, the dominant theme of the summer in terms of all this talk about whether they were going to play a more expansive style. But what we're now watching for is their discipline, their tackle-making and their ability to get the ball back when they don't have it. You mentioned dominant tackles earlier, and as, <clears throat> as much as this is sort of a new stat in rugby, it, it is very tough to play games whenever all you're doing is soaking up tackles. You know, like there, there's a time and a place for soaking up tackles because sometimes you just have to bring a guy down. But if you're always soaking up tackles, the opposition are still moving forward. You might be bringing them down at the at the line, but they're still moving forward. And it's very tough to continually be backpedaling and defending. You have to try and swing that momentum back in your favour. And Ulster just did not do that at the weekend. There were so many passive tackles, so many missed tackles. I can't remember um, which exact zebra try it was, but there was one where the guy seemed to bounce through about four tackles and still make his way over the line. He should have been brought down about four times before he actually got over the line. Yeah, it was uh, Jesse's first, uh, yeah. first try where he goes through... I think in the end, it's Flannery that's trying to make the tackle, but he's actually gone through four players before that, including uh, players that bounced off. Yeah. Like, I mean, look, occasionally players miss a tackle in in hyper-competitive environment that professional rugby is. You need to be harsh and say nobody should be missing a tackle. Some guys miss a tackle every so often. You should not have a situation where any player can bulldoze his way through four people and still get over the line. Like it wasn't like he was making the run from five meters out. He managed to go through about four guys from ten meters out. He he had he should have been brought down. And that that to me uh, is it an attitude thing. Like you know, Ulster's team at the weekend only had three players in it who were not with the team last season. So twenty of those players know exactly what Ulster's defensive system is like. It's it's not an unfamiliarity issue. It's not like Ulster have brought in 15 new players and are trying to get them used to a new system quite early on. It's a very settled team in terms of familiarity with the, the systems. So can you chalk it down to just a bad day at the office defensively? You would like to hope so. And as Johnny says, we're just going to have to sort of go on throughout the season and see if this is going to be a worrying trend or if this was just a bad day at the office. You'd like to hope that it is. Otherwise, 
there are teams a lot better than Zebra who are going to punish Ulster a lot more severely than than they did. Uh, but I, I would be a little bit worried just just how easy some of the things that Zebra were were able to do were. You know, like even something like the mall defense. Like Ulster last season, their mall was excellent on both sides of the ball. I I, I don't have the stats to hand, but the number of mall, tries they conceded directly from malls had to be minuscule. And in the first game of the season, Zebra made them look like their mall defense was weak as water. But that's, this is going to be a huge thing throughout the season, watching how this mall... Because for me, I don't think there's any point going back to last season and saying the mall defense was really good because Dwayne Vermeulen's not there, Sam Carter's not there. So they were two of your... You know, Dwayne Vermeulen, there's an awful lot of talk about his mauling um, in an attacking sense. But Dwayne Vermeulen is among, if not the best defensive mauler in the world. So, you know, that's something that to me is definitely going to be worth monitoring through the season because it's going to be a completely different, or sorry, not a completely different, but it's a set of players where you're losing two international forwards, two experienced forwards and two forwards who, whatever people want to say about Sam Carter, forwards whose strength was in the set piece. No, I I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that's a very, very valid point. Um, I'm not trying to compare last season's mall to this season's mall in exactly the same way and saying like this is the same mall as last season because you are right, Vermeulen is a massive loss um, as is as is Carter. But equally, you know, if you as I said, this is such a hyper competitive environment, you know, Ulster can't go, well we've lost two, two of our main mall operators so it's okay if our Mall is not as strong, or mall defense, or our mall attack is not as strong as last year. You've, you're setting these high standards of we can't rely on two guys. Like if if, if we're saying that Ulster's mall is weaker because Vermeulen and Carter are gone, then what happens if Vermeulen and Carter got injured last season? Is that Ulster basically saying, well, our, our mall's gone now? I appreciate it's two guys. It's, it's it's a fairly significant part of your your mall attack, but you can't be basing your entire mall structure and your mall attack around two individuals like Ulster need to find ways to have these like lines of succession where you know we knew Vermeulen was probably going to be leaving at the end of last season and if he wasn't leaving at the end of last season he maybe only had one more year with Ulster two more years with Ulster we knew that Sam Carter was likely going to be leaving at the end of last season who are the guys stepping up you know all right you're not going to find a Dwayne Vermeulen from the academy or something like that. But you need somebody who's sort of ready to step up and at least, you know, try and fill the shoes. Well, Can, like you, you mentioned the selection and the team selection earlier. So, like, I'd be interested to know, like, what your reaction was when you saw the team. Like, did you have any sort of gut instincts to seeing the, the team? I mean, there there were some selections that I was very surprised at. I mean, Matty Ray, we know... As, and th- this isn't a slide on Matty Ray, by the way, because I know it, it'll come across as one. But Matty Ray has deputized at, se- at second row maybe twice for Ulster. He hasn't properly played there, like specialized there, since his school days. And all of a sudden, you're putting him in ahead of Cormac as a Chukwu, who I do think is the general consensus would be he has a bit of a higher ceiling in terms of what he could potentially go on and produce you know it's not like you're you're throwing is a into an, 
into a second row without an established partner. You know, like Kieran Treadwell is about. Well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was surprised at that. Mike Lowry on the wing. I, I know we're kind of getting away from the forwards here, but just to talk about the team selection in general, Mike Lowry on the wing. Look, I am a huge fan of Mike Lowry. Everyone knows that this podcast has been Mike Lowry's biggest supporter since day one. To see him on the wing move there to try... and Let's, let's call a spade a spade. He's been moved there to try and accommodate Will Addison at fullback. And personally... Given that Addison has played wing in the past with Seal, I'm not quite sure why Lowry is the one to be put on the wing instead of Addison. But I'll trust that you know the coaches are seeing something in training that. Well, that, that yeah, because that's an important point to me because we're obviously not seeing training. I guess if you're looking at the big selection um, calls, question marks, whatever you want to say, yeah, you've touched on uh, Mario. Ahead of Izuchuku, but we also didn't see Harry Sheridan in that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was over there. Um, Balakudin was obviously a big one, not injured, but managed, um, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Um, which essentially Mike Lowry was playing on the wing, which we did see in preseason. So that was sort of flagged. So, you know, he was playing in mm-hmm. what would be viewed as Balakudin's position, I suppose. Um, Flannery over Burns, I th- we maybe got a sense that that was going to happen just of how highly spoken about Flannery had been mm-hmm. um, during preseason. I mean, you could equally say that they talked an awful lot about Ruben Crothers during uh, yeah. during preseason, whereas we didn't see him. But and F- Flannery, to his credit, I thought had a good game. Like, yeah. I, I I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, Flannery over Burns was a... Was a con- I, sorry, I would say no, Flannery... It was, a, it was a big call so, because sorry. Burns has always been the starter. <laughs> sorry, yeah, so uh, I sort of got mixed up there. Flannery over Burns was a big call, but we said, like, it wasn't, like shown to be the wrong call in the game like because I think Flannery had a good game and I think Burns was decent whenever he came on as well he didn't see much of the ball but the limited time he did have I thought he was decent but you know Angus Curtis in the center over Stuart Murr as well like another big call there like look we 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 are in an unfortunate situation where you know we don't get the chance to question coaches on team selection you know Ulster's media strategy means that we talk to players either a Monday or Tuesday of a game week uh, and then we won't talk to them including Sturmer including Sturmer (laughs) funny (laughs) enough Um, (laughs) and then we don't get to talk to them again until after a game so you know like whereas for example and other teams do this by the way but just because I get their emails every week, and I, I, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, I, I know that they definitely do this. But Leinster put up a coach after their team selection, mm-hmm. and you know, journalists can ask, you know, why did you do this? Why mm-hmm. did you do that? And it's it's a good thing to do, you know. Like th- there were rightly big questions, you know, like why is Robert Balcon not playing? Why is Angus Curtis in ahead of Stuart Murr? And it's, it's it, this isn't even, you know, like a pointing fingers kind of que- line of questioning either. It's it's not like we're going to be sitting there and going, you've made the wrong decision. It's a genuine line of questioning. And, you know, the coaches can say, you know, Jake Flannery has been... And I'm, sorry, I don't know this for sure, by the way. I'm just putting out, you know, hypothetical theories. You know, Jake Flannery's been outperforming Billy Burns in training. 
Robert Balakoon picked up a knock yesterday and we just decided it wasn't worth risking him. You know, he was in the starting lineup and then picked up a knock. And, you know, Matty Ray, we've been wanting to try him at second row for a while and we feel like he compliments Kieran Trout. Well, you know, it's a chance for coaches to actually say, this is what we're trying with the team. And then, you know, we can have debates about it until the cows come home about whether we think it's the right decision. But, you know, until we sit back down with the coaches on a Tuesday, by which stage, you know, the narrative has kind of moved on a bit and you don't really want to take up a lot of time by asking, yeah, yeah, why did I, you do I, this? I think, I think that's the thing. Yeah, it's lost in the shuffle by the time. Even, even obviously not in Parma, but like even after a home game, the narrative has moved on away from the team selection at that point, I suppose. So these things do get lost in the shuffle. I suppose what I would say is we're not overanalyzing the team for away to zebra if away to zebra happens to be um in the middle of November rather than the first game of the season. You know, you said it at the start, Adam, like it's a team that's plenty good enough to uh mm. beat zebra as this team did beat zebra. Um but um, <laughs> You had a good start too, Johnny. It was like Ulster haven't lost an opening game since was it twenty thirteen? Twenty thirteen, yeah. That's which a positive <laughs> the uh the first well, I suppose their first game post Heineken Cup, but also the first game of uh, Mark Anscombe, which I feel really dates that stat because it's like how many, well, this was the entire reign of Mark Anscombe and how many head coaches since. Um, Neil, <laughs> Neil Doak, Les Kiss, John Gibbs, and uh, what's nice, six years of Don McFarland. Yeah, so a long time. So they are going to be, they're going to be back home on Sunday playing um, for the first time against their, in front of their own fans since that sort of uh, shock, controversial defeat Connacht back in May that caused a lot of pessimism among fans and among some people on this podcast too. Um, Who would that be? (laughs) So in terms of, I suppose, like you're talking about like analysing team selection and stuff, um, are you like optimistic for Sunday or do you think many changes will be made or need to be made? I think Sunday's going to be a really interesting acid test because the one thing that we know about the Bulls, the one thing that we know about GAY teams are you're not going to get away with a bad set piece. So... The scrum was a massive, massive issue at the end of that game. And as I pointed out in an earlier answer, through the game as well, like people talk about the four penalties right at the end, but that didn't ultimately cost Ulster any points. Like, And that came from a situation where they were put under pressure through a kick behind, didn't deal with it well from the knock on. So that's all fine. But you also had the situation where you were uh, driven off your own ball when there were 39 minutes and 45 seconds on the clock and you ended up conceding a try off that. So that cost you five points. Um, they missed the conversion, but they scored the try off the off the cross kick and the fortunate bounce, if you want to call it a fortunate bounce. But that meant that you're, you, know, you, you weren't capable of just holding up to the scrum to the point where in almost mid, your own territory, but almost midfield, where you were able to see out of scrum and put the ball out of play to get to half time. Like, that's a massive, massive part of that game. Like, it led to one of, well, I suppose 12 tries on the day, but that cost Ulster a try, not being able to see out a scrum on their own ball. So the Bulls are going to take it to you in the set piece. You know, we, mall defence, mall defence also ultimately brought the yellow card for Kieran Treadwell because he was the fourth Ulster player to transgress them all. That loses you a player for 10 minutes during those 10 minutes Zebra scored two tries so your set piece 
which is a foundational thing for any team. We saw that in the World Cup over the weekend, but it's a, especially a foundational thing for this Ulster team who have put such stock in their set piece. You know, we have uh, line-out orientated forwards coach. We see a head coach where the basis of his um, original coaching um, journey, you know, is as a set piece expert. So it's fascinating to see an Ulster team that underperformed this much at the set piece with all the caveats of how many of their first choice front row they're missing, arguably four out of what would be the six uh, match day 23 if they struggle again in this area at the weekend you can guarantee somebody's going to mention Jeff Tamanga Allen that's an inevitability that's probably a debate for for another day of whether Ulster were prepared or allowed to be prepared for the very real possibility that as it has transpired both Tom O'Toole and Marty Moore were going to miss the start of the season but these things as much as the Bulls are going to be weakened, you know, whenever they were here last, their two best players were Renza and, and Moody. We know they're both away with the uh, with the Springboks. But this is going to be a relatively strong Bulls team. They don't lose huge amounts of players to the Springboks. Uh, they should have Marcel Gatsia, which will obviously be interesting as well. There's your ready-made feature. But it's going to be a really, really interesting test this early in the season of whether Ulster can get their set piece back on track this week. Speaking as well, because it is Tuesday, we're recording on Tuesday and Autumn, you were saying about uh, just an insight for listeners into how like it works. Um, you're going to the Ulster presser today, Johnny, are you? Yes. So that's half a quarter past four, I think. Um, what do you expect to get out of that then? <laughs> well, we don't even know who's going to be there yet. Um, <laughs> Does he organise his people? <laughs> I, would, I would imagine it'll be... To be fair, I've not shared my phone since we started uh, started doing this. So. It'll be the last three people to walk out of the team rooms, be like, right, you're getting corralled. God you're coming please. up to do media. Um, well, they scored six tries. So I think you can take an educated guess that it'll be uh, Dan Soper rather than Johnny Bell um, or Ronnie Grant, given which area of the team performed the best at the weekend. Um, probably make an educated guess at some of the try scores will be here as well, you know. Um, well, we had Tom Stewart last week actually, so yeah, it won't be him. But um, another thing I suppose is going to be the injury profile because I suppose slightly tongue in cheek there. Whenever I said to Adam that they did actually have thirteen players missing, um, Alan O'Connor wasn't meant to be injured until he appeared on that uh, injury report, so we don't know what his status was. Um, Marty Moore, we know, is back or has been back running in training. We still don't have a, I suppose, a timetable for when he's going to be back, which is obviously really a key storyline at this part of the season, given, as we said, their their struggles at the uh, at the set piece at the weekend. Um, I suppose as much as we said, you know, things getting lost in the shuffle, like I suppose what the plan is with Balakun, if we are talking about management rather than injuries, you know, somebody has had his fair share of hamstring problems over the last couple of seasons. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot to talk about. There's obviously been a lot to talk about here because we've barely drawn breath, but um, 
Well, see as well, obviously, because we haven't really touched on the World Cup because once Ireland went out, we were like, no, we're not, we're not going near this. We're, we're a Belfast-orientated podcast. But um, Ulster are obviously as well without their new South African sign-in, Stephen Kitchoff. And uh, I just wanted to ask you before the World Cup final, like, like last question of the podcast, before the World Cup final on Saturday, who, who do you think is going to win it, Adam? See, I was so on the South Africa bandwagon Until... last week. And then... <laughs> It's dramatic semi-final. Like, let, let, let's give England credit. They pl- they played well. I don't like, think anyone expected them to no, play as well as they did. Like, I, I must I must admit, I was so demoralised by the All Blacks game, just how easy that was for them, and how little of a contest in a Rugby World Cup semi-final uh, that I almost kind of didn't even want to sit down and watch the South Africa England game because I felt like it was just going to be exactly the same and it was going to be a such a depressing week of rugby given what went the week before and then suddenly realised actually this game's pretty good. So uh, depressing week of rugby. The ERC was back. Hot <laughs> uh, ERC action coming at you from all angles. Well, Paul Williams did his best to drum it up on Twitter and then uh, Ulster kicked the week off with that and it's like, yep. That's uh, that's exactly what I was hoping uh, was hoping wouldn't happen. Um, so like, I I still think South Africa. I still think that even though it did require Andre Pollard to step up and uh, kick them through at the end there, I still think they are the better team. I can't deny though that the All Blacks are or feel like they're taking in more momentum. You know. I feel like the All Blacks win over Ireland was better for their confidence than South Africa's win over France was. Both both monumental wins for their confidence, but I feel like the All Blacks in particular, just given like where they've come from to get to this point, I think will have given them more confidence than South Africa's win over France. And then demolishing Argentina will just you know, that'll just keep that momentum going for sure. So I think they're they're going to be I, I think this is probably the, the toughest final that uh, South Africa could have had. Uh, but I still think South Africa are just gonna edge it and Stephen Kitchoff is gonna arrive in Belfast a World Cup winner. Do you think it'll be like a, a really good, exciting final, Johnny? Like are you looking forward to it? I am looking forward to it actually. Um sort of looking forward to the entire week's build-up of it because I'm really interested to see what um, South Africa do in terms of their team selection because whether you want to say... 7-1 split. Well, whether you want to say the uh, conditions or England's tactics take them by surprise, if you're bringing off your right half for a completely different type of right half after half an hour, as much as people want to say, oh, Libok was having a shocker or people want to say, you know, that's just bold from Razzie doing what he has to do like it, to me it's an admission that you got something about your game plan wrong or something about your preparation wrong um, so I'm really interested to see what way they set up obviously I, I don't think New Zealand are going to play like England played because England to their credit limited South Africa but also just limited the game in the sense that they really zeroed in on I suppose not having the ball lowering the ball in play time kicking to South Africa, which they they really struggled to uh, to deal with. And then South Africa had to completely change uh, change tack to deal with that. So I'm really interested to see whether South Africa's team selection reflects 
what they expect from the All Blacks or what they got from England, and um, because you would think that what they expect from the All Blacks would actually be counted with the team that started against England rather than the team that finished against England. So I think it's going to be a really intriguing week of build-up. And at the end of the day, you've got the two best rugby-playing nations in the in history going against each other, both trying to become the first team to win a, to win a fourth World Cup. A really interesting clash of styles, so you can't help but be uh, but be excited about this. I think. Who's who's winning though, Johnny? You, have... <laughs> you sort of waited that there. Uh, for the first time, I think that New Zealand, and when I say first time, I mean first time during this World Cup, but probably also during this cycle. I actually think New Zealand are going to win because I think we're never sure about the best way to negotiate your way through a World Cup in terms of fixtures whether you're better to be battle-hardened or rested. But I just think the way that New Zealand's tournament have gone for for them in terms of having one test in the pools, which was first up, which they lost, the fact that they're still standing shows the value of, I suppose, those less intense periods. And there was you're not going to get a less intense semi-final than the one that they just came through on the flip side. Uh, South Africa didn't win theirs until the 78th minute. So they actually both went to their benches around the same time, but um, in very different uh, circumstances. So I just think New Zealand are going to be fresher um, given the fact that this will be their third real game of the tournament, whereas South Africa have had to play Ireland and Scotland in the pools and then have had to play a quarterfinal and a semifinal that were both... Uh, emotionally draining and physically draining contests. I think South Africa are the better team, but I think New Zealand are going to win. We'll see what happens. The final's on. Obviously, everyone probably knows this. 8 o'clock on Saturday night. Johnny has New Zealand. Adam has South Africa, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, And then Ulster face the Bulls on Sunday, and we'll be able to discuss that too next Tuesday. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye.